0: Welcome to the Queer SLP,
1: a podcast for the LGBTQ plus professional.
0: Join two chatty speech language pathologists as we deep dive into queer culture, evidence-based research, and work-related issues.
1: The Queer SLP's mission is to establish a sense of community, discuss informative content, and provide a space for other proud professionals to share their stories.
0: Hello. Hello. Welcome, welcome to... The The queer SLP! SLP.
1: Hooray!
0: Uh, Hooray, it's us. My name is Hector, my pronouns are he, him.
1: And I'm Natalie, my pronouns are she, her.
0: And we have a nice treat for you today, but Oh my gosh, I'm wondering.
1: Should we check in?
0: Exactly what I was wondering.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Hector, usually I go first. So I'm going to make you go first this time. Oh, What's gosh. <laughs>
0: okay. I, you had like more news to share than I do. So, I do. Uh, <laughs> 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 well, yesterday, as of this recording, I got my Moderna booster uh-huh. and flu shot combo. Well, bam. Yeah. Big wabam. They offered the flu shot. I had just went in there originally for my booster shot and I am out. Big old (laughs) headache, but nothing too bad, like no fever or anything like that. I just kind of feel off.
1: Right. I mean, I remember when you got your Moderna the first time you were out. yeah. (laughs) I was
0: out, out, like.
1: I did not move from my bed. So
0: it's nothing like that, which is great. But, you know, that's the current update. Other than that, just, you know, trucking on, doing our best to live
1: life. And you... Yeah, you had your birthday recently. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for my <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I just had my birthday uh, a October weeks ago. 20th. Yeah, so a
0: couple of weeks ago. So I am a good old 34. I'm, I think that's officially your mid 30s. Yeah. Um, Feeling solid about that. I love my 30s.
1: Well, it gets better, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it 100% gets better. And then other than that, I went home. My boyfriend and I, we went to visit my family.
1: Was this the first time your family met him?
0: Not the first time, which is great because it's it's actually the second time, which is a little bit more relaxed. You know, he's not getting grilled. People are just kind of like, and this is how it is, you know, like versus right. like, tell me about yourself and all the random things that I'm not going to remember about you. So we did that. It was awesome. I got in and out. As a California baby, of course, I need, the, I need that every single
1: time. Like, so does Andrea. Yeah. <laughs> every time. <laughs>
0: every time. You just can't, like, it's so I don't weird. get it.
1: I'll be like, what? What do you mean? Yeah, you, you just have to have it. It's one of those things, I guess, you have to be from California to understand. I,
0: I guess so, which is fine. Um, but it's one of those things where I can't explain it. I guess every area kind of has their, like, local thing that people are yeah. like, that's not really that good.
1: yeah i mean like i remember when i lived in boston it was dunkin donuts like because that's Um, where dunkin donuts originated it's not good but yeah well up here in seattle right it's
0: it's dicks right and i'm like oh gosh that's awful but people love it (laughs) and i know white castle somewhere else you know yeah so we all have those things we all have something but yeah, yeah that's kind of my current update oh one last thing i just bought my ikea greenhouse cabinet so i bought into all of them so
1: your little plant babies can live Mm -hmm. in it
0: my like more than 50 plant babies yeah um we kind (laughs) of went overboard a little bit during covid and then the problem is that my boyfriend and i combined we don't even live together yet and this is we have like but two separate, babies too. Yeah, I'm like, how are we going? What's this going to look like for when we move in together? Um, oh my gosh! So yeah, so well over 200 plants at that point, which yeah, is kind you of ridiculous. You're gonna to
1: get a big apartment.
0: I know. Yeah, you might
1: need a house. Uh,
0: a <laughs> dream. So that's me. What yeah. about you? What's going on with you?
1: Oh my gosh, where do I even start? So I feel like the last. Month and a half or so has been an exercise in relinquishing control and patience and just kind of having to learn to roll with things. Back in September, I tore my meniscus while working with a child at work. I was sitting on the floor and stood up, and my meniscus just gave out. And my orthopedic surgeon, told me that I'm not 20 anymore. (laughs) He's reminded me of that a few times. Um, But anyway, I haven't taken a step on my leg since mid-September. Um. So I am unable to do anything that I'm used to doing. You know, I, I had surgery, they repaired it. I'm on the mend. I'm in PT, which is great because now I have something that I can focus my energy on and be like, well, I have to do my exercises. But it's just been a very, very challenging fall with my health. That's the big thing. Well, I mean, there's another big thing too, that's more positive in that, uh, Andrea and I are buying a house. <gasps> Yay. Wait,
0: buying or like building?
1: We are buying. So okay. we have, we have some land that we bought last year and we wanted yes. to build. But as many people probably know, the cost of building materials is just sky high. And it's becoming really obvious to us. It's going to be a long time before we can actually build a house. But we don't want to rent anymore. So we're buying a house and we're going to live in it until we build our house. And then when we move to our built forever home, then we'll use the house that we're buying now as a rental property.
0: Ooh, so. hashtag <clears throat> passive income. Yeah. <laughs> that is yes. the American dream. Good job. Yes. Side hustle.
1: <laughs> yeah, because it's going to we're starting to think it's going to be a few years before we can afford to build.
0: Right. Well, a few questions. Well, first of all, you know, I'm sure we're all, you know, pretty sad to hear how things are going, especially because we had a little bit of like a a silent period there. And, you know, for anybody listening, it wasn't because we weren't (laughs) thinking of you and our podcast and the importance of what we do here. But, you know, life sometimes happens. And so we just keep moving forward. That's one piece. The second piece is so with your doctor saying things like you're not 20 anymore, like, do you consider ever giving up preschool and only working, you know, like elementary, middle school, you know, so you don't have to crawl
1: around? That has crossed my mind, Mm -hmm. which makes me very sad because I, I like the place that I'm working. Right. Well, I'm on medical leave right now, but my like my coworkers, I like the work environment, I like the kids, I like the families, and it would be a huge bummer to not do that. But yeah, it's crossed my mind. It kind of depends on how recovery goes, mm-hmm. um, because I'm in my 40s, and he told me that I have a little bit of arthritis in my knees starting. Oh, okay. You know, recovery could go in any direction. Okay. But I'm super motivated to get better. So we'll see yeah, how it goes. Yeah, but I mean um yeah it it's considered I've, I've considered possibly changing environments yeah cuz I don't know if I can crawl on the floor after this we'll see
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a terrible segue, but (laughs) (laughs) I think think about like, you know, Britney Spears and there is this one music video where they show it. She like injured her knee. I'm pretty sure was a torn meniscus. Oh, no. And after that, she just I'm sure everybody who knows Britney knows like wasn't dancing the same. And whether that's and she's even admitted it on her social media. She's just so aware of her knee and worried about doing it again that you just don't. You start to second guess your body, yeah, so I think a big part of p t is the mental piece of like we're rebuilding this, you know, yeah. like it's not like we're you know doing anything to take away we're we're trying yeah. to rebuild here, but yeah, so I yeah. get that, um
1: yeah, well, and it's one of those things where, like the day that I tore my meniscus, I was at work, i you know i picked up and carried a child who was really struggling with transition and he just he just needed you know the help and you know I went out to the playground and and ran around with the kids for a few minutes and I Mm -hmm. you know got up and down off the floor several times and I you know crawled around on the floor and had no pain like right. no warning whatsoever. It was just like I I stood up wrong. Somehow I must have twisted hmm. it in a wrong way. You know, maybe it was already weakened, but it was it was a severe tear. Like s- sometimes people have a tear and they don't even know it. Mm-hmm. This was like pain.
0: Wobbly wobbly. Oh. The, the little
1: girl, the little girl in my office was like, "That was loud. Like she heard it." <laughs> <laughs>
0: She just like, that was <laughs> loud. And exit.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, you know, calling classroom, like, someone needs to come get this kid because I can't walk.
0: Yeah. Uh, rough. But keep moving forward. Yeah. We'll all keep you in our thoughts. Thank but- you.
1: But should we talk about our guest?
0: Yes, we have a lot of excitement. I'm so excited. I'm I so <laughs> excited for everybody to hear about this guest. And for multiple reasons, not only are they in a completely different part of their life compared to yeah. um many of our listeners, <laughs> but just their outlook
1: on life. I'm like, oh, were we all there? It gives me hope for the future of our profession. It really does. Yeah. Um, this conversation was amazing. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, I felt so energized. You know, and I think in a time period where a lot of us are just very cynical, right. I left this conversation feeling hopeful about the course of the profession and where it could go. Right. It's like, this This person is young. Right. They're a senior at Cleveland State University.
0: Right. So Um, and we're talking like just putting in grad school applications, young y'all. Like if you can remember that time in your life. Um, When we
1: recorded it, they had just submitted their applications.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, Connor is actually not only a student, but he's also a vice president for the lgbtq plus csd student association so not only is he doing big things for himself but for other lgbtq plus members of the community but also like for our field like huge like
1: He's doing LGBT um, advocacy work at his school, yeah. um, well also double majoring, and is also vice president of this national organization. Um, we'll, you'll hear all about it. An incredible story. And I was just so pleased to meet this person.
0: I was very pleased, very hopeful, and also a little bit like, whoa, that was so... <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah well i like it made me think back to like when i was a senior in college i was like what? i was not yeah. doing
0: nearly as much oh you know, no i was a senior <laughs> in 2010 like yeah literally in the beginning of that <laughs> big <laughs> years for senior. both of us yeah i was like hey there is a market crash yeah stop dreaming well that's the thing
1: it's like right now like we're going through a period of trauma in our you know in our world and just to do all those things in the face of right a lot of things going on is even more impressive
0: right it's such a testament to his character so and this entire generation like it speaks volumes to the need for change to happen early on we can't just wait to pop out a bunch of slps hoping to become culturally competent all of a sudden it it happens early in your training and even before then so anyway with that in mind We hope you enjoy this next Proud Professional episode, and we will be back with more episodes. Bye. All right. Bye. Have fun. Welcome to the Queer SLP. My name is Hector, and my pronouns are he, him.
1: My name is Natalie. My pronouns are she, her.
2: My name is Connor. My pronouns are he or they.
0: Awesome. Yay. Welcome to another proud professional episode. We have a special guest here because Connor, well, I was going to say how old you are you, but that's kind of like me judging you. But like, where are you at in life? like?
2: Yeah, well, you can ask how old I am. Currently, (laughs) I am 21. I am a senior in undergrad at Cleveland State University in Cleveland, Ohio, just getting ready to apply to graduate school. So right kind of on that cusp in my life, hopefully I get in and can proceed on that path. But I guess time will tell. But yeah, I am still very much a student, not a professional. So I appreciate the label of proud professional still uh, next to my name. But
1: (laughs) proud pre-professional.
2: Probably be professional works. Good. Yeah, because they even have like paraprofessional
0: um, as an actual job title now. So, you know, I would say you're within that range. But yeah, so let's start off right away. Just kind of like, since you're in it, how did yeah. you even get into the field of speech language pathology?
2: yeah so it was like kind of end of high school and everybody's like oh where are you going to school where are you, what are you going to major in And I did not have a clue I was kind of like okay at most subjects not really great at anything not really terrible at anything and I was kind of just like playing around with ideas for majors and I watched a documentary about a like four-year-old girl with osteogenesis imperfecta which is like the brittle bone disease and in it she went to a speech therapy and I just kind of had This moment of like, wait, I thought that they just taught kids how to say their R's. What have they got to do with her? And I just like kind of had that moment of like, that doesn't seem right did a tiny bit of research and kind of just started seeing like, oh, wait, there's there's more to it than that. Um, And then kind of just went from there. And then once it came time to actually, you know, pick my major and everything like that, I started reading course descriptions and kind of found what I was reading really, really interesting in the speech and hearing courses, started reading some blogs and things like that. And then, you know, just kind of found it all interesting enough, seemed like there's enough diversity in the field that I would never get bored with it and ended up making an excellent choice. And I really, really have enjoyed everything so far. So that's kind of how I ended up in speech pathology. I kind of bounced between SLP and audiology for a moment, but I definitely think that speech pathology is more my style. I totally had a, a pause when you said there's enough diversity in the field.
0: And I was like, oh, what?
2: Diversity of
0: clients.
1: Diversity of... Of, uh, <laughs> a beat too, I was like, diversity, what? And yes.
2: then I was like, well, oh, oh. Diversity of oh, clients, many sub disciplines many many things you can do. But yeah, definitely not definitely in not the clinic. <laughs> okay, yeah. I, that's, I was like, is
0: there a new census I'm not what? aware of? Or are the grad programs really, <laughs> you know, really making
2: a change now? Or new ASHA numbers on? just dropped. We're doing amazing now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> do you find that your undergraduate class is... Is more diverse, or does it still? Mostly- no, absolutely not.
2: Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> okay. We okay. are so. I I'm, I do a lot of the. I spearhead a lot of the diversity initiatives at my university. So I co-founded our like diversity committee. The mm-hmm. very first thing that we did was get in touch with our university's office of institutional research because we just wanted to know those numbers we were trying to do recruitment efforts and stuff. We wanted our baseline and we just really wanted to see the bigger picture of it. And so we got our exact statistics um, and we're doing better than the national average. We have, I think, a little over 20 percent of our students across our undergraduate and graduate programs identify as like an underrepresented racial minority. But yeah, still not enough. And it's not reflective of the university as a whole, definitely not reflective of the city of Cleveland as a whole. And of course, not the clients that we serve either. There is some wonderful diversity among my faculty. I have, I think, over half of our faculty are Black women, which I am so uh, oh, so incredibly grateful awesome. for. It is It is amazing just to kind of, because they all weave it into every single course they teach, that perspective and everything. But among the students, yeah, unfortunately, I do not think that we've seen the sort of change we'd like to see. I mean, that's huge, like the fact that your yeah. faculty is more diverse because i mean
0: again my education was definitely all cis white male and female but definitely of one specific you know ethnic group
1: mine was also not very diverse mike the faculty we had like one gay professor that was it
0: i mean that's more than me so so, at least i know of.
1: <laughs> that's so exciting though like <laughs> half the, half the faculty that's awesome but yeah. i wonder you know i just wonder how I don't know if in your diversity committee if you brainstormed at all how to recruit students from diverse backgrounds into the major.
2: We really tried to take like a three-step approach. I am very much of the opinion that like, if you invite people into a system that isn't working for that group of people, you've done them a disservice. So the very first thing that we wanted to focus on was establishing support resources and then also kind of doing a lot of peer education work so that when we began recruiting people from those different backgrounds. They were not coming into a hostile, you know, racist environment or anything like that. Unfortunately, you know, coronavirus kind of halted our recruitment efforts. We were hoping to go speak with high school students um, in the Cleveland Metropolitan School District and things like that and do, you know, shadowing days and peer observation days and things like that. But we really had the uh, kind of we're forced to slow down and focus on the real background stuff first, which I think has been um, beneficial because, you know, the more you kind of look into it, the more you realize how necessary it is to be doing that sort of work. So we did a lot of like support resources. So we compiled all of the scholarships and other university resources and uh, kind of a guide to reporting discrimination, if you should face it, with multiple different options, with levels of formality, things like that, just so that it's like nobody kind of feels lost ever. We recruited all of our diverse faculty to like basically put their name amount of things saying like, yes, I'm open to taking mentees. If anybody wants this sort of support, like all you have to do is ask. Um, And we just tried to eliminate barriers to receiving any sort of support that students might want. And that was kind of our our primary foundations that we've been able to do so far.
0: You're kind of spearheading this in a way. So prior to you entering into your sort of like department, was was there anything in place at all?
2: Outside of just the kind of influence of our diverse faculty, there wasn't anything formalized. There wasn't anything presented to students directly or really acknowledging that lack of diversity. And I think that that acknowledgement component is extremely important just so that people aren't like, am I crazy or am I the only non-white person in this room? You know, that shouldn't ever be a thought. That should, It should be on everybody's mind that like this is a problem. And I think that that's something we also had to accomplish before we could do anything.
0: Well, I mean, already definitely showing professional tendencies i will say so yeah. kudos, so, kudos to you <laughs> kudos Dave, to yes you. all
1: the grad programs look at this right <laughs> this is basically um, a
0: letter of wreck
1: yeah, in <laughs> But that that leads me. So there's another organization that you have co-founded, right? But this is it's not specific to your school.
2: Yeah. So the LGBTQ plus CSD Student Association is my other organizational affiliation. um, And that is a national and even international organization. We had a couple people from Canada at our last meeting. So that was wonderful to see. But that is just to kind of provide similar areas of support and community and mentorship to the LGBTQ plus community. It's kind of something that we don't even have the foundational statistics to even think about. Like, is this, you know, is there a recruitment problem? Is there a problem where students are feeling unsupported because that information just isn't collected? So we really were going based on just personal experience and seeing kind of what would we want out of everything? What could we do to make our own experiences better? And how do we bring that to other students as well? It actually originated through kind of or my my introduction to the organization was through um, something called the IDEA Work Group through NISLA. Um, so it was the Inclusion, Diversity, Equity and Action Work Group. And I was appointed to the first year that they were doing that, which was last year. And it was a group of students just kind of working on, you know, those diversity related projects and recruitment, everything like that. And one of our assignments was to um, kind of reach out and connect with one of ASH's multicultural constituency groups. And I chose to go talk with Legast, which is the kind of professional side of things for LGBT professionals you And at that meeting, I was very fortunate to get connected with a couple other people who kind of already had this idea brewing. So Dr. Charlie Lennell and Kaylee Stein are the two people that kind of really were instrumental in this. That's our board of directors, chair and president, respectively. I'm currently the vice president. And I think it was in January of this year that we really began having these conversations about what would we want this to look like? How do we want to go about this? And we landed on, you know, a national organization uh, or really just inclusive evidence anyone that just for all students to come together and find a sense of community and everything. So
0: how many members do you have now?
2: So we have about 100 people on our mailing list. And then our last event was attended by about 25 students. So we're still in the very early stages of everything. Um, But we're definitely hoping to kind of grow and grow and hoping this episode helps some people find us. It really is a matter of awareness, I think, of these resources existing, because the more kind of professors or professionals that hear about us, all of them go like, oh, I know the perfect student who would benefit from this. And they always refer us to, you know, at least one or two more people. So I think it's just once students kind of find out that this community of people exists, it's just a matter of getting connected with us. Whoa.
1: Whoa.
2: Oh. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I'm just having all the feels over here um because I just yeah, yeah it's it's just something that um it sort of amazes me that it took this long to get this sort of organization you know Hector and I have both had the experience of feeling like very isolated like as a student you know it's like oh Am I the only queer person in the room? And it just makes me so excited to hear that you know, kind of like the next generation of, um, I don't know, really like old timers. <laughs> the you know, the next generation of of CSD students will have more resources and more support from each other to you know know that they're not alone. And uh, I just find so much value in that.
2: Yeah, and I think that feeling of isolation is very much both something experienced by queer people just generally in society and something faced by any CSD student who, is not fit into, who does not fit into that one specific mold um, that we usually see of just a white woman. And so I think that we definitely, you know, wanted to address it in that context and, you know, to kind of address the consequences of being such a, you know, non-diverse field. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's so awesome,
0: though, that you're reaching people across the... I mean, we were so excited when we got our first international proud professional. I can't even imagine how y'all felt um, right. when you got somebody from Canada. <laughs> like, I know, it's we were like, doing
2: introductions. We were doing introductions, yeah. and they said, Canada, we
0: were all like, whoa, that's amazing. <laughs> Yay!
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, it shows you how much there's a need, you know? And so you all are doing the groundwork to kind of, like, make this... Uh, The visibility is just so important. So, I mean,
2: are you all going to ASHA? Um, We are not. We're still a little new for that. We have some of our members going and I believe our president's going. So if anybody wants to connect at ASHA, reach out. But we won't won't have any sort of formal anything planned currently. I will direct anybody who's interested to see what Legasp is doing, because I do believe that they go to convention.
0: That's good to know, because we were asked, by the way, Natalie, we were asked (laughs) if we were going to be at (laughs) Hatcha. And I just want to address that Uh, this year we won't, you know, but I wouldn't be opposed to following years, like even even doing like a collaborative, like multiple, you know, just LGBTQ organizations under one umbrella tent
1: that would be a really <laughs> fun convention activity yeah
0: let's
2: get let's get a little coalition going
0: yeah i yeah. want it would be easier <laughs> to coordinate yeah. so for future ashes stay uh, stay tuned for that so you know we, we talked about your pronouns but do you mind telling us a little bit more about you and like who you are how you identify and then jump into kind of like what's it like being a, a member of the LGBTQ plus, you know, community as a a CSD student.
2: Yeah. So um, I identify as a gay male. I use he, they pronouns kind of just as a reflection of my not stereotypically male gender expression, but I do identify as a gay male. And I have since 2015 when I came out, um, actually on National Coming Out Day, so kind of topical, but... Yay! So I think six years. But yeah, so and so I was in my sophomore year of high school when that all occurred and have been, you know, out and proud ever since. And then when I came to college, of course, and became a CSD student and everything, it was kind of, you know, that adjustment, of course, that I'm sure everybody faces. Uh, but generally, I was very, you know, open. Still, I actually started painting my nails my senior year of high school and since then, kind of haven't, it hasn't really been a choice of mine whether or not people, you know, are able to see that I'm gay. And that's something intentional because I got very sick of the, you know, are you, you know, mm, like that sort of interaction. And so I'm just like, yes, you have your permission to assume, but I've had a pretty wonderful experience myself, but I don't think I can speak to all students. I really had to work hard to find a community. I actually ended up working for my university's LGBT center. I'm the office operations manager. So I found a wonderful community of people um, through that and also kind of an inside look at all the, you know, institutional obstacles. So a bad chosen name policy, really bad roommate matching, stuff like that. But within my, you know, actual CSD department, it's really fallen on me to um, take on the role of an educator and. For me, I know that that's voluntary because of my position uh, with the LGBT Center, with my advocacy, um, with my openness, everything like that. But a lot of students that we've been kind of uh, that I've been interacting with through this organization, it's not a choice for them. It's just kind of something, a burden placed on them. And it's a lot of self-advocacy to just get basic respect for their name, their pronouns, to not have the room full of people addressed as ladies when somebody doesn't identify as a lady. And so it's kind of been placed on a lot of our students to be, you know, the educators. And for people like me, that's not really a problem. The problem really does come from why was there nothing before you got lucky enough to have a student like me come through who was willing to do this work for you?
1: So when you say you take the role of educator, are you saying like other students are approaching you and asking questions? Or are you like saying even faculty are like saying, well, Connor, what do you think? And putting you on the spot. Like, I'm wondering what that looks like. That it's educator been, it's role. been
2: both. Yeah. So it's been both. Um, I definitely have students kind of come to me and um Usually out of an abundance of caution, anybody comes to me and it's just like, I'm wondering if this was the wrong way to approach something. I'm wondering if this ended up coming across offensive. And I do appreciate that sort of care. But it is also times when, you know, professors might come to me for some very basic level questions. And so fortunately, one thing I was able to do was um, get our all of our professors and our first year graduate cohort signed up for a safe space training. So kind of similar, usually a place we'll call them safe zone training, which just kind of covers that introductory terminology and how to be respectful and everything like that. And that kind of was um, something that I think was definitely necessary just to kind of put the foundation there. But it is a lot of just like individual support. It kind of is interesting how roles are sometimes when, you know, me, a 21 year old is seen as having expertise that these people with PhDs do not. OK,
0: so this is the queer SLP. So we're going to, you know, go into a little tea here. <laughs> I'm curious what your thoughts are. So our field is huge on, you know, cultural competency and the importance of that. Do you feel and again, not talking about your professors specifically, because you interact with people from across the country and and even the continent. Do you feel that professors or programs are, you know, like seeking out competency when it comes to the LGBTQ
2: plus community? Um, I think, I think yes and no. There's definitely a lot of work to be done in LGBT competency and well beyond just cultural competency generally. Even if you look at the past year, a lot of schools didn't have any sort of diversity initiatives until, you know, the summer where Black Lives Matter suddenly became, it was no longer an option. It was, if you were not doing something, you're part of the problem. And it kind of forced their hands to approach those problems and talk about those problems. A lot of the problem is, that LGBT cultural competency is tucked away in the box of gender affirming voice. They say, oh, if you're not interested in gender affirming voice, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think about LGBT cultural competency or anything like that. You'll never you'll never work with them when the reality is, you know, LGBT people face all the same problems. We're normal people. You know, who would have right. seen that coming? <laughs> like, so it's just it's that it's that idea the only of only time just, a like, gay
1: person would need a speech pathologist as if they're trying to change their voice more? Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's just,
2: it's truly, it, and, and so you see a lot of people or a lot of programs rather kind of like tucking that away and being like, okay, box is checked. We're done with that. We we have that covered. Um, And I, that's something that I'm personally interested in is gender affirming voice. And so I've been emailing back and forth with a lot of these programs being like, is this cultural competency incorporated into your curriculum? Is this something that's offered in your clinic? And most of them will say, yeah, we had one or two trans clients last semester. Can't guarantee you anything. No, it's not in the curriculum, and that to me is a problem from the start. Of it. it to me feels like they're probably not qualified to be treating those couple trans people. They're definitely not qualified to be teaching students how to you know interact with those trans people. Until it's kind of accepted that this is a wider need than the, the small little subset of voice, then it's definitely not adequately covered.
1: Well, and it's just so interesting to me because this is in our scope of practice. And the fact that it is not well covered is shameful, in it, my opinion. Yeah. Because it's in our scope of practice. I don't think I got a any- need trans voice training in grad school maybe we talked about it a little
0: we talked about it that's about it there was nothing on like actual approaches i mean let's just be honest and connor maybe you don't know this yet (laughs) but your voice class is maybe like a one blip thing and then the rest is all like speech sound disorders
2: (laughs) and yeah uh, i am i'm being very intentional with my grad school selections trying to find some amount of guaranteed voice experience. And it's been really yeah. difficult, well, you know, voice generally, let alone, you know, gender affirming voice.
0: Right. Yeah, It is the yeah. elusive unicorn in our field. It feels like it, there's gatekeepers to the voice you're in or, you know, somebody or, you know, so it's an interesting thing because given the, again, not just the pigeonhole that, you know, like that's where... Anybody who is interested in learning more about the LGBTQ plus community will will focus on. But you kind of like there. Even within that group, there's not a lot of awareness, you know, unless it's pushed on you or you seek it out. Yeah. But yeah, shameful would be. I was cringing the whole time.
1: <laughs> <By> yeah, the- <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I was cringing too, and you know, and I and just thinking more broadly, not just about voice training, but also just diversity in general and the lack of training. And I don't know if you know this, Connor, but recently ASHA created a new requirement for continuing your licensure where you have to get at least an hour, I think, of ethics training a year. And I think, why can't we do that with a requirement for cultural competency training? Because I don't think that that's a requirement. Hector, is that a requirement?
0: I think so. You know, it's and not. it's like if
1: we're if we're required to to spend an hour, an hour every three years, which is nothing doing ethics training, you know, where's the cultural competency training? We're not getting it in undergrad. We're not getting it in grad school. We're not getting it professionally unless we seek it out. So how is it going to change?
0: I think it really lies in like. I remember having this conversation with my department and them saying, well, this is a generalist trading. Therefore, you're going to get blips and pieces of everything that we do, but you're not going to get really in depth into any one specific thing. And for me, as somebody, you know, who is not only a person of color, but also is a gay man, it that tells me that you don't value that. Like, I feel like that's a cop out. That was the feeling that I got as somebody from a marginalized community. And so when people say it's generalist, it's like, so what you're saying is that you're still catering to basically. <laughs> In other
1: it. words, you're whitewashing it. And, yes. <laughs> you <know. laughs> yeah.
0: You're like, I'm like, oh, so oh, non-native English speakers, people that aren't of, you know, like European descent, <laughs> like those are, those are part of the general. Got yep. it. You know, well, so. that
1: makes me think back to what you were saying, Connor, about making students feel like they're welcome in the profession at an early level, like even high schoolers. And it's like, if, if we're not doing it now with the people who are in it now, you know, yeah, how are we going to get more? <laughs>
2: It's one thing to say, like, oh, we care about cultural competency. But until that level of prioritization is displayed in your curriculum, in what you consider worth, you know, focusing time on, then it's it's not a priority. There's no other way to um, I mean, and especially a lot of a lot of um, the stuff that I have been able to do just being a student and running a student organization is like. These are all voluntary things. All of my peer education events for my NISTLA chapter were voluntary things. If they you didn't want to click on the Zoom call, you didn't have to. And for that reason, I think a lot of people who would have benefited from these things would have just missed out on those things because they didn't prioritize it either. And if the individuals are not prioritizing it, the graduate programs are not prioritizing it, you're ending up with a generation of clinicians who are not culturally competent. Oh,
0: way to say it. It's just like what Michelle Obama said, where she said, you can't wait for the world to be ready for you to like kind of show yourself like the same. way, We can't wait for the rest of everybody to care about LGBTQ plus community, like not just rights, but just general like knowledge about it. Um, So we can't wait. Those people are not going to show up if they don't. Like like you said, the programs are saying, well, you know, you don't have to know that much about if you're not going to pursue that. Interesting.
1: Very interesting. And I'm looking at our list of questions and it's like, one of our questions is like, do you have any in, any disillusionment with the <laughs> profession yet?
2: <laughs> a little, a little.
1: <laughs> Maybe just a little. Um, Maybe just a bit. But anyway, on a more positive note, what are you what are you looking forward to in the SLP realm? What are you excited about?
2: Oh, right now, right now I'm just excited to hopefully be done with applications soon. Oh. <laughs> but <laughs> But, you know, hopefully I I really I really do think that like People gravitate towards this field, me included, because it's a rewarding field. But when you're a student or especially a student in undergrad, you don't get to like apply any of the knowledge. You don't get to see results. You don't get to see people benefit from your effort. And so I'm hoping, you know, in grad school and as a professional, you know, I can I finally be able to work with a client and see things go well. Hopefully, fingers crossed, see things go well and be able to like feel good about it and all of that. And I'm sure that's going to be like, you know, a fraction of the time versus the times where I'm like, okay, I'm making no progress. I'm in a crisis, whatever. But I still just think being able to kind of see the results is something that I cannot wait to do.
0: Natalie, are you 100% flashbacking to your first session ever? Like as a yes. student, because I am too, just from you talking about that.
1: <laughs> so we, I have a first client story. Can I share it really quick? Of course. So my, my very first client, was a little boy he was autistic he asked for a glass of water and we in my school we did our first therapy sessions in pairs so there were two of us in a room we gave him a cup of water and he picked it up and he looked at it and then he just like dipped it over and like dumped it all over the table like with all of our cards and our things that we had carefully planned our session with it was hilarious
0: oh that is a funny first story my my first client was a, a fluency client Mind you, in my program, you didn't get a course in fluency until the last semester of grad school. (laughs) So I showed up to that client going, "Uh, so what, you know, I didn't know what to do. I had no idea. I mean don't get me wrong, even if I did have a different client, I wouldn't know what to do. But it was one of those cases where I was like, I am so out of my depth here. Um <laughs> I had to look at what like cognitive behavioral therapy was and all of these things that you had yeah. to like, kind of like go down under. Um And it is trial by fire. And I am so excited for you to go through that, Connor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it, I,
0: it does
1: get rewarding.
2: I, I will update you with my first client story, which I'm sure will be a disaster. I, I feel like it's inevitable. but And
0: it's OK. Yeah. That's the thing. Is like you have to accept that it's gonna be okay. And and what I love that we are doing right now by having you on the show is like there is a collective group of you all going through this, and I'll call it traumatic experience of applying to grad school.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: traumatic, <laughs> um, I would agree. It was super traumatic. Um and so Like you are allowing, you know, like, again, you're giving grace and space to others as well to kind of like process how they're feeling, because there are, you know, Grad Cafe shows everybody who accepted, but there's even more people who don't get accepted. Right. So and for those of you that don't know, Connor, can you tell us what Grad Cafe is?
2: <laughs> oh, Grad Cafe is a website that catalogs or uses submitted catalogs people's um, acceptances and rejections to all of the different grad programs. So you get to count down the number of slots remaining as you await your uh, your physician, your email.
1: That sounds absolutely horrific. Do other I programs
2: feel- do that? Or is that just? Yeah. So it's uh, it's for any it's for any this website specifically is for any graduate program, and so you got to kind of dig for all the speech pathology stuff. So I'm sure there are many other incredibly intense and uh, unhealthy students going on that website (laughs) (laughs) with the same exact thoughts.
0: So anybody who's pursuing a a post baccalaureate degree is a masochist got it <laughs> Yes,
2: <Yeah>, basically
1: <laughs> so, i'm just so grateful that i didn't have to do that when i applied or they didn't have that you know back in my day uh, they had it when ba- mine. the internet was barely a thing in 2000 <laughs> let me just say
0: yeah they had it during mine i remember they announced the, the school that i was my undergrad uh, First speech was at, I'll just say, the University of Washington. And they announced like their acceptance, like right before one of our neuro classes. And uh, you just saw, because we were all waiting to go into the class and then we we're like, oh, they sent it. So we checked. And needless to say, I didn't go to that class and I ended up taking mm-hmm. tequila shots at 3 p.m. So <laughs> it was not oh a good yes. way to announce a class of your results right before a class. Just kind of, that was my experience with grad school the first time around. So I did not get in.
2: (laughs) And that's okay. It It was okay. (laughs) I I
0: eventually got in the second time. Look at you now. Yes. Awesome. Um, So we kind of talked about your hopes, you know, moving forward. And that was a great positive. But we, and Natalie kind of hinted at it, like as far as like being disillusioned. So, I don't want to spin it as a negative, but kind of like a realism kind of way. You know, we've all had to do a lot of soul searching during this period of, of a pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement. So like, how do you feel as a student pursuing a, a professional, you know, degree to be a speech language pathologist? Like, where do you land in
2: all of that? It, it is interesting because I'm the sort of person who is just like, OK, I'm looking at this problem. I need to be a part of the solution. If that's something that I can do, I'm going to do it. And so when we're in this field that's at the intersection of so many different things, like we have a diversity problem. We are, you know, in schools responsible for a lot of like Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with um, just like school to prison pipeline. And it's like the way that uh, like maybe autistic kids or others who present with behavioral challenges are also disproportionately affected by that and the role of SLPs in that and the roles of SLPs in accent modification. And there's so many different issues. And it is interesting to be right in the center of it, especially as a student, when you're also facing all sorts of student related issues of institutional access and affording college and different. Opportunities provided to different groups. And so it definitely feels for someone like me who wants to, you know, save the world or whatever, it feels a little, you know, I feel a little lost. I feel a little adrift from any one goal. And that's why I think it was very important to me for me to kind of nail down my major advocacy issues and things and real passions looking into. Like this organization, the LGBTQ plus CSD Student Association, really kind of allowed me to plant myself in one sphere of influence and really try to make change there.
0: You said something that really struck me is one your awareness of the school to prison pipeline and, and our role in that as professionals. Like I remember Natalie saying, you know, it took her being in the school system to learn about that terminology. Oh I yeah, did,
1: I, had I never heard of it right until, until I until I was about 10 years into my career. Right. And And I moved from a clinical situation to a school situation. And then people started talking about it. I was like, what is this school to prison pipeline? And I was horrified because I had never even heard of it. And just so it is. It's amazing that you are aware of it.
0: Yeah, Um, that's huge. Because again, I did a presentation with another, you know, it's it's regional. It really is. It kind of showcases like how, where you're at, is what you know and so a lot of students that are in your uh, position right now don't didn't know what the school or prison pipeline was when i introduced it at a, another conversation that i was part of so i think it's awesome you know you're part of that group that's kind of spearheading this D- do you feel like that the onus is on you because you are part of the lgbtq plus community or like do you feel like your peers are not as like feeling the responsibility as much as you are because you're part of a minority group I, or marginalized group
2: i would say i would say that and i think that this is something that a lot of people have happened just in terms of general politics is they have that realization when they come out of like oh wait like some of these laws that didn't used to affect me affect me now i should care about them and that is kind of your slope towards, oh, some of these laws that don't affect me affect other people and I should care about them. And so I think that it, it was a starting point of me being like, oh, okay, this lack of diversity, it does affect me. These other issues might not, but I still kind of come from a place where I know, you know, I know how it feels to be more isolated. I know how it feels to be not in the majority here. Um, And so I do feel a little bit of a push towards having an awareness of those things, but how much of that is based in, you know, me being a member of the community versus just my, my personality might be, might be up for debate.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. There's part of me that, that thinks that historically, You didn't really need to think about certain things unless you really had to. I feel like that's changing over the last couple of years. Um, I think that just with all the movements and people starting to speak out that I'm starting to notice more people who don't have to think about it, don't have to think about diversity are thinking about it. It gives me hope that there'll be change because it's difficult to get any kind of traction if the only people that are speaking out are the, the ones that have to, you know, because it's their life on the line. It's exciting, you know, but I, I, I also feel like we need to be cautious because um, some people are just paying lip service.
0: Right. You're right. Um, so many people, I think it was, I don't know, maybe you all know when the term privilege was really defined, specifically white privilege. That kind of, for me was kind of like that call to arms a little bit for people to kind of say, you need to learn about, you know, I mean, of course that white privilege was meant with like white fragility (laughs) as far as like, no, I'm not privileged, I burned everything, Um, but, and again, no one's saying you didn't, (laughs) but but once we like unpack, I mean, called a little bit of like accountability there. Um, I think I started, at least for me as a person of color, noticed a little bit more about people taking ownership and and not feeling more of the burden of like always having to like explain it to people why this is, you know, unjust or, or, you know, systemically racist Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever the issue is. But that was kind of a shift for me. And so I'm glad to see for you, Connor, and your experience, it sounds like I mean, yes, it's being called out. And to you know, like, unfortunately, you are being the one to have to kind of take that on, you know, as a a member of a marginalized group, but I'm glad it's happening because it didn't happen in my program.
2: And I think that regardless, you know, I am I'm happy to shoulder some of the burden with future generations in mind. And that's weird to say when, you know, I'm not out of undergrad is thinking about the future. But it is a thing of like, I want to leave this program and this field better than when I entered it. You know, I want to create some sort of change and I'm willing to put in the work to do that. And it is kind of part of it is, you know, hoping other people take on that burden as well. I think there's a big conversation also around who's qualified to do that work. Because if we kind of just invite every minority we know to a diversity committee and give them so much extra work on their plates and everything like that, are we, who are we truly serving? We are burning people out for the benefit of, you know, some others but still we need to be able to split that work between like have the lived experiences at the core of an effort and then be able to split that work among a wider group of people who are willing to do that work i'm just so proud of you (laughs) (laughs) thank you i
1: mean this is just the beginning for you i I don't even know if you realize how amazing this is you're 21 yeah
0: (laughs) I, you know
1: <laughs> you, you, you've got so much more to go i you're mean you know me
0: <laughs> uh, well you you spoke a little bit about it as far as like you're not even there yet but like similar to the school to prison pipeline we're also create curating school to bigot pipeline <laughs> school to right school to um um, what's another term that I'm looking for? but like you know somebody who is yeah. just another s l p who doesn't yeah. care about we yeah,
1: all products of our of of our education and background
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know whether you know whether that's one way or the other or somewhere in between there's a lot of work to be done,
0: oh for um, sure, yeah, and a lot of work to undo as well yes so i mean like natalie and i have both worked in the schools for years now and it's you you start seeing all of these ideas form in preschool you Mm -hmm. know like we start enforcing pronouns and gendering kiddos as soon as they're three (laughs) you know as far as like testing it you know and that's within a standardized assessment like You'll learn about that yeah. too, Connor. Like and how? Yeah, boy, oh, BS boy! Wait till are.
1: you see certain tests, certain language tests that that young children are given. the The pronoun usage is. Excessive, excessive, and I think
2: I think that um, I don't know. It's also very easy. It's a slippery slope towards trying to solve problems regarding diversity and stuff in our field into trying to solve racism or trying to solve all of the issues in society, all the issues in higher education, um, all the issues in you know K twelve education. And we need to I don't know. There's a real balancing act between like making generalized change and narrowing your scope enough that it's doable and just kind of relevant.
1: Totally. Well, like you said, spreading out the work, you yeah. know, and I, I'm thinking back to something you said way at the beginning about how the pandemic has prevented your group from doing certain things. And I'm wondering if in a way that was a positive because, it gave you this opportunity to not feel like you have to just jump in with both feet and you can really think like what exactly do we want to do here and not like you said like save the world and fix every problem and really narrow our focus to what really needs to be done
2: absolutely it allowed us to be very intentional with kind of what how we wanted to present our program when we started reaching out to those groups. Um, And it allowed us, the people behind it, to kind of develop that cultural competency ourselves. We were like, okay, well, we're not going to go visit any high schools anytime soon. Let's do our, you know, token uh, anti-racism things. Let's have a book club and stuff like that, which is not a perfect solution. It doesn't cure racism or anything like that, but it doesn't undo every internalized bias we have. But it's still, you know, a start. We had to do education, educating ourselves and kind of improving our program program before. And I'm glad that we were kind of our hand was forced into making sure that that was a priority. You
0: are a unique person of undergrad experience during COVID. For sure. (laughs) Do you feel like you've benefited a little bit about like instead of having your actual grad experience? Again, hashtag sorry to those who did, you know, like because clinical work. That was different. Natalie and I both went basically back to grad school to learn how to be telehealth providers.
1: Like, yeah, there was this rush to be like, well, how do I do teletherapy? Right. You know, and I'm an old timer, I really had a hard time learning it.
0: So, yeah, what really about you, Connor? Was it like was it better cuz you were you're you're essentially learning through theory right now? I mean, you still have mm-hmm. to have, I think it's 20 hours of observation right before you apply. 25, yeah. 20, oh, did they up it or was was I wrong? No, I, yeah, I it's always been
1: 25. Okay,
0: yeah, that's how far I, removed I am from that. Like, one, how did you do your observations? Two, what was it like being a student during COVID? I
2: think with most people, I think, like, middle of March 2020, we moved all virtual. And that was when I was taking the course called Clinical Methods, where we get our observations. So I had to do about, I think, like... 15-ish of my hours um, online. So we used a platform called Master Clinician, which is just pre-recorded sessions. And I honestly, I liked it. It let me see, you know, that was one of my first exposures to gender affirming voice training was because I was able to see that more in depth, even though it wasn't offered something that we offered in our on-campus clinic. I was able to see swallowing evaluations, which is just not something we do because we don't have the resources and different things like that. So I really think that the different medium of learning, while, you know, doesn't replace in-person learning or anything like that, was definitely beneficial for me to experience, at least for a little while. Got old after after. Sometime, but <laughs> yeah. but um, yeah, so observations honestly went pretty well for me. Um, and then academically, it was it was fine. It was nice to be able to jump out of bed and be on a Zoom call in two minutes instead of, you know, getting dressed and commuting and everything like that. But you did miss out on, of course, that sense of community and everything uh, that comes along with in-person. So that was the unfortunate side of things. Like, did you even have study groups? <laughs> no, and it was very much. It was very much like you know, a hundred black boxes. Uh, no, no cameras on except the professor. Nobody asks any questions. You go into a breakout room and it's dead silent. And you're like, does anybody want to do the problem together? And it's like uh, so awkward.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Sounds like group therapy for me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm kidding. Oh, it wasn't always, me, always I like never, that. I <laughs> I'll never leave this behind. Uh, it depends on what age group you work with. <laughs> That's my answer. <laughs> oh my gosh, what an experience! I mean, one yeah. the community was a big part of what got me through it. Was was those all nighters? To be honest, like especially you know what was that course? Speech sound science. I hate that um. class. I hated that class. I don't really yep. care about sine waves. <laughs> still don't know, understand, I mean, to some degree, but thankfully they don't ask about it that much, Connor, on your praxis, so. No, they
1: really don't. <laughs>
0: you don't need to know about it.
2: <laughs> good, good, good to know. I, I will also add about going online, though. That was kind of one of the things that enabled me to get so, you know, involved and knowledgeable and stuff about cultural competency. It was, you know, through professionals hosting webinars that weren't going to be online that suddenly were online on all of the different topics we talked about that I was really able to kind of learn those things. So it was nice also in that sense of increasing access um, just geographically that I was able to kind of see different perspectives that way. So that's one other benefit of the shift to online that I will point out.
0: That's awesome because, again, not being able to, com- to connect with the LGBTQ plus community, like if you had just been s- secluded to your own cohort, you might not have ever even encountered other people from our
2: community. Absolutely. Yeah. And and that's uh, honestly, if uh, we hadn't all learned Zoom to cope with the pandemic, I don't know if a national social organization like the LGBTQ plus CSD Student Association would even have been an idea. It would have been just like, oh, how do we even begin to approach hosting things on a national level? That wasn't that really just wasn't an option that we knew about prior to
1: everything. Isn't that interesting how like it changes your mindset? Like I feel like that it re- the pandemic really has changed our mindset. And like even this podcast, you know, Hector and I record every episode from opposite sides of the country. And I don't know if I would have had that mindset beforehand.
0: Right. I but think but we we, we all were challenged. Basically, what we thought worked. We learned. Oh, it, it has to work some other way; otherwise, it's not going to happen. So, even college and learning through this experience, you know. Let me ask you: Did those master clinician cl- uh, like observations? Did they actually like show people like were they just all great sessions? Because whenever I have a student observe me, I'm like, this is where I messed up. <laughs> this is how well was- <laughs> I did in plan therapy, and this is how poorly I do with data tracking.
2: <laughs> so there was some so you could know. very clearly. Like the child just didn't pay attention for 45 minutes and I sat and watched, you know? So there was still some of that, but not and all perfect at, sessions. We,
1: yeah, we always, we all have those bad sessions, even, you know, even experienced clinicians, right? Like, and like oh, sometimes gosh, regularly. I do, you know, sometimes
2: yeah. regularly.
1: Like, <laughs> and I mean, and the, the unfortunate thing about this profession is I think that we're a group of perfectionists. And so we really ride ourselves hard and we have those. And um, yeah, I'm always working towards giving myself a little grace and being like, you know what? They're kids. Sometimes the stuff I try with them is not going to work because they don't always want to play along. And I just have to roll with it and be OK with having a crappy session.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, no longer type A. Just I'm going for yeah. an A minus B plus Kind yeah, of thing. You know,
1: yeah. <laughs> And the kids still make progress. They still right. they still do.
0: Connor, would just you going... say you're a type A person?
2: I, I think I'm I think I'm very type A, but I'm trying to <laughs> escape it. I, I, I read something. I was like, you need to be type A to get into grad school and then you can't, it's not sustainable. <laughs> that.
0: Accurate. One hundred percent accurate from my experience. It just you could pick out those people who tried during grad school. We talked about how they like to do pretty therapy how everything's laminated everything looks cute first of all none of my ideas in grad school were that amazing that i needed to laminate them for (laughs) a second of all you know it's that good old saying like any good clinician can take a paper clip or a piece of paper into a room and do something with a a, with a client so i try to like really hold on to that because i don't want to make materials
1: yeah, I used to, I can't I can't tell you how many hours I spent laminating things, and I, I just I don't do it anymore. Yeah, I'm like, and I'm sure your sessions
2: are still very good, and so oh, yeah. <laughs> the difference the difference is not the lamination.
1: No,
0: but yeah, I have a hard um, question.
2: It is something that (laughs) uh,
0: right. I'm like I want you to think about this and like also think about this for yourself as well. So something that I'm running into, having gone back to the school year, is the 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 very real fact that we are continuing to live through a shared traumatic experience, which is a pandemic, uh, along with all of the other racial injustices and things that we are unpacking with America's ugly history, and it's showing itself in my students as well. Are they doing anything to prepare you or work with you through this? Like, are has there been anything or is it kind of like move forward as business as usual?
2: Right now, I think it's move forward business as usual. And I think that that's honestly part of a trauma response ourselves. We want to, we want things to be back to normal. We want things to be how we're comfortable. And if we are reluctant to acknowledge when things are not and when things need special consideration. I think that we could be doing so much more in terms of educating clinicians on counseling and just kind of addressing the specific needs of our clients and everything. But I think we're hesitant to acknowledge that that sort of thing is even necessary to begin with. That was a great answer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank
1: you. Excellent. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it, and I think at this point it Sometimes it's hard to remember that we are still experiencing trauma. It's not over and it doesn't do much good to pretend that it's not there. I think it's tempting to pretend that everything's okay, right? Because we want things to be okay. But we're not okay.
0: It's okay that we're not okay. Which right? is like the biggest thing. And yeah, okay. Well, like, like you said, now that like we just added this ethics piece as far as like a mand- mandatory continuing ed, we're thinking, oh, now we need a multicultural piece. And then I'm like, I'll throw in now you need counseling too. Like, our field is not a theory and Bay, like, you don't, it, that part of it, as far as like knowing how to treat, a, you know, like a phonological disorder or work with a, a phasic patient or work with somebody who has dysphasia, That's like so small right. <laughs> compared to all the other intangible things that we are maybe giving an hour of continuing it three year, every three years yeah. to, you know, there's a huge cultural shift that needs to happen in our field. Totally. And I'm really hoping Connor and your experience, you know that you get to have more of that. I don't know if there's more counseling or more of that in the graduate experience, but I would, I can speak for myself. I did not feel prepared to deal with the heaviness of what we do and how to process that as a clinician.
1: You know what it makes me think about when we're teaching autistic people, right? We talk about soft skills, right? That, you know, a, a, Autistic person often has, you know, the ability to do a lot of things that are more academic in nature, but learning how to interact with people, right, is a job skill that you don't learn in college. It's under the surface. And it makes me wonder all these things that we're talking about, like, oh, we need, we need education and and diversity and we need ethics and we need all, you know, what was the other one you said, Hector? Counseling. Counseling, right? Do either of you feel like maybe that falls into that same category of soft skills that are just sort of assumed that we know how to do it when we really don't?
0: Ooh.
2: You go first, Connor. <laughs> I, I I would I would say a lot of those cover soft skills. And I would say that we need to consider, you know, do these things have a place in our curriculum in a classroom, or do we want to focus on experiential learning in those sort of domains? I think probably, you know, 80% of my knowledge of those different traits come from, you know, my jobs. I was a resident assistant for two years. That's where I learned all my counseling ability. You know, I, so it's like those sort of experiences are probably more important than you know, sitting in a classroom or and, and to put it in the context of continuing education, you know, watching a couple hour webinar every couple years years, definitely not kind of the best way to learn those things. I love that. Right.
0: I would say it's a mix of both. Like it's, it's the same thing as anything that we learn. It's You know, we have theory and then we have practice, right? You learn about your theory and then you're like, and in practice, you're like none of this actually works. But <laughs> when it comes to these the soft skills, I think we run into the same, you know, if we if we solely relied on those experiences to teach those skills, then those people that don't seek those out will never learn those skills. They'll tuck it away with, I don't work with transgender clients. I feel like there needs to be a balance of like, because not only that, like it puts the onus back onto um, marginalized groups to kind of advocate for themselves. So if we're like, this is part of your accreditation, you need to have a class in this, whether or not you... It's a good class, is one thing, but like, like the fact that we're making these mandatory requirements will, at the very least, people just need to know it exists. You know, whether or not, yeah, and it's, like, it's
2: about choosing to prioritize that time too.
0: Ooh, you are forcing yeah. them, I mean, even
2: if it's forcing them. It's oh, yeah. you know, you are making that a priority, and that oh. that speaks much deeper than a couple very motivated people doing it on their own.
0: Oh, you are one hundred percent correct there. Like that's why. Like you said, like if it was mandatory, if it was part of your accreditation process, which all of these programs want, then they would say, oh, it's not just a generalist. It actually is something that we have to have. Maybe if you're listening, Asha, I don't know. Or the AAC, I believe that's the accreditation people. But I'm looking at it saying, why don't we ask our, our question? Because, and then kind of alter it a little bit, Natalie. So instead of asking you know what does it mean to be a proud professional cuz you're i mean you're you're there but you're not there yet i kind of want to know what kind of proud professional do you want to be
2: Ooh. um i excellent question i think that i don't know pretty often you'll hear people talk about just like existing as a queer person is activism and i kind of want to bring that into the light some more in my own personal experience I want to just be someone who is visible and doing the work and (laughs) seeing results is, is my dream you know but um and just having other people see that and want to do the same I think I think is is would be you know the proudest thing I could do. Do you have a plan? <laughs> <laughs> a
0: I, feel plan like, I feel like you're the type of person to have a plan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going straight to Asher president. And... <laughs>
1: Yay! <laughs> <laughs> can we watch? I want to see this happen. <laughs> oh,
2: I mean,
0: I can only speak for myself. I was totally, I caught myself looking at you with hope while you yeah. told us what you hoped for yourself. And I have nothing but great and positive vibes to send you, Connor. And and to all soon to be, you know, grad applicants, this is a hard time. We spoke a little bit ahead of time about how traumatic this is going to make <laughs> most Natalie and I go back yeah. to what that experience was. And I did. I started sweating. Did you have yeah. a sweat response?
1: A little bit. Yeah. A, l- a little bit of a like an anxious, like tight chest, like, oh, grad school. Uh, so hard. yeah, but you can do it. You yes, can
0: do it. you will, and you will make change. And uh, and again, for those of you, you know, if you don't get in the first time, I didn't get in the first time. I got in the second time. You know, and that's with me saying I'm a brown person of color, male, and gay in my letter of intent. You know, like you, <laughs> you could, like I thought I was a for sure in. Nope. <laughs> so do the work. You'll you'll get in. Connor, do you have any last words? I mean, of course, tell, tell our peoples <laughs> where they can reach you, where they can reach um, your organization, and then sign us off.
2: Yeah. So um, anybody interested in the LGBTQ plus CSD Student Association can find us on Instagram at LGBTQ CSDSA. Um, I believe it's the same on Facebook. We have a private Facebook group just for LGBT students. So um, you're really getting that support and community in there. And it's totally private. So you can stay anonymous to everybody else. From the Instagram, you can find our link tree with links to our mailing list, which is where we send out most of the information. If anybody wants to connect with me personally, um, the best way to do so is actually on LinkedIn. So uh, you can search me up there and and let me know what's on your mind. <laughs> but Yeah. All righty. Well, thanks right. for joining us, Connor. Thank of course. You. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Queer SLP.
0: Want to be featured on our Instagram page or be on the show? Check us out at thequeerslp.com for more information.
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Queer SLP.
0: If you enjoyed listening, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends, family, and colleagues.
1: Bye! Bye.